2: all right welcome back to the huddle and flow podcast i'm steve white here with my dude jim trotter jim it's gonna hot again in southern california i don't know what we did but mother nature is blowing some some eastward winds west and we are catching some african heat vibes man what's going on
1: look for those of us who do not have air conditioning in our homes we come to work like this in a tank top man It's the only way to try and stay somewhat cool here i was going to wear one of those cooling rags on my head to stay cool make sure i wasn't sweating on air but i figured that was going a little too far some folks might think it was a do rag which would be silly for a guy who doesn't have any hair so but anyway this, this is about the best i can do to stay cool down here cuz you're right it is gonna hot it it,
2: it is gonna hot and you, and you know what else is is gonna hot Subject wise, not trying to be facetious in terms of using that terminology, but we are seeing this freaking coronavirus not slow down, Jim. It is not slowing down. It is continuing. You know, we're seeing on the collegiate level. I mean, Nick Saban, head coach at Alabama, the athletic director down there, announced on Wednesday that they test positive. University of Florida, 19 players test positive. They're shutting down their game this weekend and pushing back their operations there. It's, it's, it's not going away, people. And so, we, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure out ways to kind of manage this. But to that point, Jim, we know the Tennessee Titans, they had, what, roughly 20-plus players and staffers, test positive, had to push their games back uh, for almost two weeks. They come out and they beat the brakes off of the Bills Tuesday night. Ryan Tannehill and other players are saying, yeah, we had an edge to us because all you people were telling us how how scandalous we were and how wrong we were and how we were intentionally breaking the protocols um I mean I get it if you need something to, to generate an edge but I don't think the media or anybody was the one who was violating, you know, protocols that are, that have not hit 31 other teams not saying that they they might not but something happened there as to where it was widespread
1: look Steve when one particular team has an outbreak unlike any other club in the league and one of its players even goes on social media and acknowledges that they're holding practices that they're not supposed to be holding, um, how is that on the media for doing its job and reporting that? And what I find so interesting in this entire situation is the commissioner comes out this week and says essentially, well, let me read it to you. Let, let me read and to and you it what to me, he please. says.
2: Okay, this is Commissioner Roger Goodell on a conference call Tuesday. We have all been working, the Players Association, our medical experts, our outside experts, the Tennessee Titans, every other club involved, just to continue to put the protocols in place and ensure that modifying protocols, if they need clarity, they need changes, and working just to keep our personnel safe. That includes personnel, players, coaches, team operations personnel, That focus has really been working well. We are really working closely in identifying and speaking to clubs and players and having an open dialogue. This is not about discipline. This is about making sure we're keeping our personnel safe. That's been our entire focus to date.
1: Uh, Okay, Steve, hold on. Wait, wait. (laughs) yeah, this is where I gotta jump in for a second. So this is not about discipline or being punitive. And yet, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the league office that sent out a memo last week threatening teams with discipline, with the loss of draft picks, with fines, with um, forfeiture, going as far as saying that could take place. So did I miss something here? Was something lost in translation? Because one week they're threatening teams with all of this if guidelines and protocols aren't followed and then the next week they're saying this is not about being punitive or, or, or imposing discipline on a club. I'm missing something. And for Ryan Tannehill to come out after the media to me was so disingenuous. And again, like you said, use whatever edge you want. But let's be honest here because the facts matter. You can't make up your own facts here. And the fact is the Titans have had more positive tests than any other organization. Again, 20 plus. And so we didn't make that up. We're simply reporting it. So if you use that to your advantage and your edge, great for you. But at least be be straight about it and honest about it. Um, your club was the one that had the outbreak, period. Yeah, Jim, if we're talking about, like, it's not about
2: discipline, I wonder if uh, Darren Waller and Derek Carr and uh, those handful of coaches who got socked in the pocketbook $100, for $100,000 $100, for not properly wearing their mask on the sidelines. You're going to say, wait, I'd like to be educated before I uh, get that, that money deducted
1: from my paycheck. And let's not forget the organizations of those coaches were fined $250,000 each. So if it's not about being punitive, <laughs> I think those clubs might have a different opinion on that.
2: Well, Jim, as we've been saying all along about this virus, and now we can add maybe some of the reaction to it from the league,
1: it is a moving target. So, And look, uh, Steve, let me be clear here. I, and you and I, I think, both feel the same way. The league and the Players Association, they are doing everything they can to make sure that they stay on top of this, to keep people on top of it, to be vigilant, all of the, all of the above. But don't insult our intelligence and tell us one week it's not about discipline, it's not about being punitive, a week after you have sent out a memo threatening clubs with discipline with fines, with loss of draft picks, with forfeiture of games, all of those things. You can't have it both ways. So that's all I'm saying here. Just be straight. Just be straight.
2: And on that being straight, Jim, we've got a a very special guest joining us today. And I I think it's it's important to us in these thematic terms, okay, so one of the reasons why I wanted to become a journalist was because when I was a, a little kid growing up outside of St. Louis, I saw Bryant Gumbel doing sports on NBC. He was like, him and Irv Cross were like the only two black guys I ever saw doing sports and news. I was like, I want to be like him. And I think you probably have some feeling like having a person of color inspire you in in some way in life. Ralph Wiley. Absolutely. The late Ralph Wiley, late, great Ralph Wiley. So... This is where we're bringing in our next guest, James Lopez, uh, a black filmmaker, one of the great, astounding, successful black filmmakers, but one of the few of them. He works with Will Packer Productions. He's the president of that organization. And Jim, just real quick before we bring him on, I mean his resume is absolutely intense. But from what we were just talking about, being an inspiration and, and maybe us getting his face out there and having him on this podcast, what that could mean. To a young person being in college or high school about becoming a filmmaker and putting the stamp their own stamp on this industry where diversity continues to be or lack of diversity a lack of diversity
1: continues to be a, an issue in that industry yeah you know steve um obviously james is a behind the scenes guy but the thing i love about him and the thing that people will hear in this interview is that he talks about making himself available to people who aspire to do what he is doing and to be in the position that he is in. And, you know, when you and I started this podcast, we said we wanted it to be about more than just football. We wanted it to deal with, with culture. We wanted it to deal, at times, with race and those sorts of things. And whenever you see sort of um, someone who is one of the relative few, a person of color is one of the relative few in their position, in their job, in their role, um, It's and, and he has an aspiring story, uh, I want to bring it. I want to bring it forward. And look, you and I um, have both seen the photograph. We've both seen Girls Trip. We've both seen What Men Want To. All of those sorts of movies. And and James Lopez is behind all of those and more, many more. And so I think this conversation will interest our audience because again, I'm not going to say he's a trailblazer. There are others who have been there, but he is someone who is in. Um, a decision-making role who opens himself up to others and is trying to bring others along with him so that one day he doesn't feel he's alone out there in terms of what he's doing.
2: And one of the reasons why we're having him on a football-generated podcast is because he played college football at Sam Houston State, and he is working on a biopic on the story of Doug Williams. He talks about that and a whole lot more. So now let's talk. To James Lopez all right now we are joined by James Lopez filmmaker president of Will Packer Productions former wide receiver at Sam Houston State you can see he's got a breadth of stuff on the resume James thanks for joining Jim and I
1: thanks for having me fellas appreciate it you know what James As I as I went over your resume I was man just blown away at all you've accomplished and, and all you've done. Um, when you t- And I'm gonna look at your bio here so I make sure I get this stuff right and don't misrepresent you. But um, you produced the photograph, you know, you with Issa Rae and, and Lakeith Stanfield. You produced L- Little, uh, Issa Rae, Regina Hall, Marci Martin, What Men Want, Taraji P. Henson, one of our Howard alumna, um, Breaking In with Gabrielle Union, Girls' Trip with Regina Hall, Jada Pinkett Smith, Queen Latifah, Tiffany Haddish, etc. And you know, as we know, your films have grossed over eight hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, to let people know, before that, you were at Screen Gems, um, where you were senior vice president of marketing. Or I'm sorry, uh, you were at Screen Gems, but you were also before that at Atlantic Records as a senior VP of marketing. Um, you are also a member of, um, you're on the board council for the Producers Guild of America. Um, you have a Grammy nomination. You were also nominated for an MTV award. You played football at Sam Houston State. Uh, I, I, I feel, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, what's, what's left, man? And, and you're still a young man, you know? Well, how she, did you fit called, so? She called fifty-two young. I, I do call that young. I, that's me like too. You, you still you still got that simileg behind your ears. So, <laughs> I, I, how did you fit so much into such a con- condensed period of time?
4: Uh, I would say the key to my success and my experiences, inquisitiveness and hustle, man, is ask me like, if you weren't in entertainment, like the you know you started off in music and then you got into film like what would your dream job be? And I, I always say a GM of a football team, like, mm. you know, uh, being a former athlete, I just always like to be around creative, you know, creative type of folks and and, and, and athletes. Uh, they all have one thing in common, common and that is a uh, tireless work ethic. And that's what I live my life by. That's why I tell my children, you know, I may not have been the smartest. I may not have had the highest GPA when I was in college. But nobody was going to outwork. Um, and, and I carried that uh, intestinal fortitude into my work career. Um, every position that I've had, um, I've always thought two or three steps ahead. I've always looked at uh, the moguls in different areas of business, whether it be film, television, music or sports, and kind of look at their stories and see where they've gotten read their biographies. If I had the opportunity to meet any of these people, I asked them a million questions. And uh, I just always just watch and really like suck the knowledge off of people that I see doing it the right way um, and try to emulate that. And, that. and that's been the key to my success really. I, I, you know, I haven't, I've never been like the flashy type of guy. Uh, I've always just been like, keep your head down, work hard and people eventually will notice.
1: When did You're when did, when did you hospital. know you want? I'm sorry. When did you know you wanted to go into entertainment?
4: Uh, really, when I was in college, um, when I was playing football at Sam Houston State, I knew that when I left it, you know, I was a, a, a general business major, right. and I really was kind of aimless in terms of what I wanted to do in the business world. You know, I'm I'm the son of Peruvian immigrants, born uh, American. So, I saw my parents toil and work hard, blue collar jobs. And, you know, I got a chance at a free education through football. And the dream in our family was like, okay, you're going to get a job where you don't have to work with your hands and your back doesn't hurt at the end of every day. But I wanted more than just that. I, I wanted more than just sitting in a cubicle, you know? Um, and when I was in high school and college, really, I was always like my school's tastemaker. Like, I, I brought the new mixtapes down from, from up north. You know, I was, I was born in Jersey. So WBLS and kiss FM and red alert and and Marley mall and and,
2: Frankie Crocker.
4: Yeah. All those guys. So I I would, my cousins would send me the mixtapes on the weekends and I, and I would, and I would make copies and spread them throughout the school. And I was always the first one up on fashion, on music, on entertainment. And I, and I brought that to my college as well. And I always wondered like, okay, I, I can't sing, I'm not a DJ, I'm not a producer, but how can I be involved in this business? And I would go to the record store and the clerk would just say, read that magazine over there, it's called Billboard Magazine. So I would walk into the store every week and just read the magazine and not pay for it. I'd just sit down on the floor at the back and I'd read it from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started learning about the industry, like what publishing is. And, the different record labels and companies that existed and, and even people that I would read about in the magazines, And then I would send letters to these record companies. I would never get a response, but I would write looking for seeking internships and job opportunities after I got out of school. No one ever answered. And then uh, I caught on with a small independent record label in Austin, Texas. Started my career there. Way up and move to LA and work my way up to business, uh, but I always just wanted to be around entertainment. I was always just just inquisitive about it.
2: James, you, you know, you talked about you know being you know you a former athlete. You want to be around athletes and entertainers, and, and it seems like that's such an interchangeable thing. Like the athletes want to hang out with Little Wayne and Ludacris and whomever, mm-hmm. and they want to hang out with with the ballers. But when you're starting to see people like Kevin Durant. And, and LeBron James and Martellus Bennett kind of take the track you did now that they played professional sports, and they still do, except for Marty B. But now, like, Marty B's an author, and he's getting into animated films, and we see LeBron has, has definitely got into the Hollywood scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What about that transition? Because they at least had the economic capital to, to step out on that limb yeah. to go there. But what about the athletes now trying to get into that realm of things, and how are they handling it besides just writing a check?
4: Well, I notice definitely nowadays, or at least the athletes that I come in contact with, like Chris Paul, for example, um, you know, who, who are, I see them making moves in the right way that athletes perhaps in the 90s and early 2000s didn't, right? You know, it, it was it was in vogue to, to slap down some large investment on a record label that fails. Like, you know, athletes are a lot smarter with their money the more and more I come in contact with this generation of athletes, they're a lot more educated on on wealth management than the athletes of the past are. Um, and they're making, they're about making smart investments, not only in entertainment, but I see a lot of athletes heavily involved in investing in Silicon Valley tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think new generation, they're a lot more educated, just like this generation of entrepreneurs is probably a lot more educated, a lot more savvy than I was coming um, and I think that just comes from, you know, lessons learned. You see generations of the past making mistakes, but you also have this generation has the advantage of, of having a generation or two of athletes who can help guide them. They, they've they heard the stories. They They have mentors. Whereas when we were coming up, we didn't have that because there was no example. There was no, except for MJ, really, who else was building global brands back then? You know, but now you have this generation of athletes that can look at Serena, Tiger, MJ, Jeter, LeBron, the list goes on and on, KD, Chris Paul. So you have people that you can look up to and say, okay, they did it this way, this way, and this way. And then you could even dig deeper and see who they had around them. Who were their teams? Who were their attorneys? Who were their business managers? Who, who were their agents? Who were the people behind the building of this brand and this empire? And I need to go get a team like that.
1: You know, James, people who want to get in the film or even music will start to look at you that way, obviously, with what you're doing. What sense of responsibility do you feel from that? A
4: great sense. You know, uh, I think it's, you know, I try to make myself as available as I can uh, as a mentor. Um, There's a lot that I do that that I just don't make myself available. To a lot of folks, even get you know, believe it or not, just through DMs on Instagram. You know, it's it, you know, it's just as simple as answering a question for someone. How do I do this? Go here. What books do I read? And I send them a list of books. Uh, I make myself available in terms of you know, I've done a lot of speaking for college students in, as well as HBCUs. Um, you know, I, I I gave the commencement speech at my alma mater a few years ago. Something I thought I would never do. Uh, mm-hmm. Number one, because I hate public speaking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but number two, I, I I didn't feel worthy. To be honest with you, I graduated man with a C. <laughs> I was a C plus student. Uh, but I but as I told the students sitting in that in that arena that day, uh, C plus student with an A plus life, um, and you know, it's great to walk out of here with that piece of paper, but that GPA does not guarantee you the life that you're going to live, whether it's a high GPA or a low GPA, it's about the effort you put in. Uh, so I, I, I like to impart that uh, uh, that wisdom upon students who are coming out. And I try to make myself as available as I can, as you know, as, as time permits. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of people say I'm humble to a fault. Uh, that I make myself sometimes too available to people. But I don't know how to be a, any other way.
1: I'm curious what that moment was like for you to give that address, knowing you are the child of Peruvian immigrants and knowing what they wanted for you to to then stand on that stage and give that address. What, what was that moment like? Uh,
4: it was very emotional for me. Uh, I spoke a lot in the... about especially my mother, uh, who was one of 11 children. And she came here at the age of 19 in 1963. And, and, you know, fought for the American dream to make sure that her children had it better than she did back in the old country. So toiling with the immigration uh, policies and getting visas for them and have. And then, you know, our house was like the, was like the Underground Railroad when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Every relative, most of the relatives who are here in the United States now, all came and slept that on our floor, and then mm-hmm. made a life for themselves. And it all, you know, the tree, the, the the roots of that tree is my mother. You know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's several of us, and and we all we owe that to my mother. So I spoke about those things, um, you know, and. and you know being in texas and being you know it was a year removed from from our current president winning the election and the rhetoric around uh, i think it was the hot topic at the time was the renewal of daca Yep. and yep. that would have directly affected my family right mm-hmm. and so i i spoke about you know i spoke about how we're all dreamers um and i wouldn't have gone on to do any of those things if my mother was not welcome here
1: you know you you mentioned pursuing the ideals of this country and in 2014 you did the piece american which was man it's powerful um and number one i'm wondering what compelled you to do it and then number two let's now fast forward six years to today And have you seen a change? And your thoughts on where we are?
4: Uh, Yeah, I remember the exact day that I was compelled to do something about it. I was sitting on my couch. It was in, I can't remember the exact date. It was August, I believe. And uh, the uprising in Ferguson, Missouri was playing out on the news. And I'm sitting there with my youngest daughter. I'm watching. And I was so frustrated that here it is again it happened and I'm complaining about it but I'm sitting on my couch doing nothing about it. So I called Nate Parker who's a friend and and I just expressed my frustration and and he said, "Why don't we make art? Let's do something." And I said, "Well, that's why I called you. I have an idea." So I pitched him the rough idea of what I wanted to do. And he happened to be at LAX, about to board a flight to Ferguson to shoot documentary footage. He was like, well, I'm headed there now. And I said, okay, well think about it and let me know if you wanna try to collaborate and do something. About five hours later, I get a text from him and he says, check your inbox. And I open it and it's a 10 page script to a short. Three weeks later, we were on set filming. Uh, we we dug into our own pockets. We, we we called in favors, and we shot this really poignant short. Uh, that you know is probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career. Uh, and people to this day come up to me and be like, "Man, that that is powerful." What has changed since then? Unfortunately, not a lot in terms of those issues continuing. I will say that I have more hope than I did before, because after the murder of George Floyd this summer, I've seen more voices that don't look like ours speaking up finally. And I've, you know, as we've all known a lot of the move, movements that we've experienced in this country to move civil rights forward have to be taken on by, by more than just the people that are directly affected it, it has it has to come with acknowledgement from white folks in this country, about our history, about our past. And we're never going to move forward if everybody just sit down and acknowledge what has happened in this country. And I'm not just talking about uh, police brutality in, in the current situation, but you know, when you hear discussions and and talk about, well, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, hmm. and they should like we did. I need white folks to know their own history. Cause when you say things like that, that lets me know you don't know your own history, right? Mm-hmm. You have to acknowledge that you, your ancestors, they benefited from the GI bill in the forties where black folks were shut out. They benefited from FHA loans where black folks were shut out. Previous to that, when I hear discussions about reparations and, And it's met with a snicker. Yeah, that's never going to happen for you folks. Move on. It's not going to happen. The past is a past. Do you know who got reparations after the Civil War? Slave owners for their lost chattel, their lost property. Mm -hmm. Slave owners got reparations because they had no more slave. It was property. So the government sent them checks. The ancestors of the slaves got nothing. Japanese internment camps, those families got reparations. Germany paid reparations to the Jews after the Holocaust. When I hear that uh, it's not realistic, it is. They just don't want to do it.
1: Right.
4: That, that, James, that's usually how it works. How, how
1: How does this climate impact the projects that you pursue? if at all. And and how do you balance your, what you call, I believe I've heard you call passion projects with the need to actually pay the bills?
4: Yeah. You know, it, it's look at the end of the day, it's a business, right? So um, we always have to try to balance our slate with the projects. I very important is, and even with those, we still want to make sure that it's entertaining and that we have the best opportunity for commercial success. But sometimes there are projects that are just too important that we, you know, and a lot of them we have in development that, that, you know, we are developing those with the eye to make an impact and change and not necessarily commercial success where they end up could be streaming, could be television, uh, but we believe in them strongly enough. That we feel is worth the effort to develop them, um, and you know, primarily we've been known to be, uh, you know, comedy and thriller heavy driven company, but we do have a lot in development uh, that's going to, I guess, diversify what we what we've been known for. Uh, the photograph being one of them. We had never done a romance before, and we and we put that out, and we have. Uh, you did it well. Thank you. Thank you. you did it well. You know we have some big action projects that are world building epic. We have an ancient African epic called Warrior Queen that we have in development. Story of a queen named Amanarinas who defeated the Roman Empire. We feel like her story is important to tell. Um, you know, and we we, we have uh, a project called Bama, um, and we you know we're gonna do our first sports driven film with with. The Doug Williams uh, biopic, which we're really excited about. So, tell us how that ha, came ha. about. Well, my partner, Will Packers, from Tampa, from St. Pete, and he grew up a Tampa Bay fan, and more particularly, he grew up a Doug Williams fan. Um, and he has a good relationship with Doug and, and the team around him. And for years, they've talked about it. And Will, was, you know, wasn't quite ready yet. And then we we approached Doug earlier this year. Uh, because we we come up with with like a rough idea how we wanted to tell a story. Um, and for me, really, it was more about not doing the by the numbers biopic. Um, you know, we wanted to try to figure out a new way you know, or a different point of view. And uh, when we talked to Doug and his team and we said, look, we, we think we know we want to tell your story in a different way. We want to play around with it, but you know, would you, what do you think about telling two parallel storylines? You're following Doug's career, but you're also following someone that he greatly impacted. So uh, we got, a, when it was announced that we were doing the project, uh, I got a call from Anthony Hemingway, great director. Um, and Anthony said, man, I was born to direct this project. And I know the two guys who should write it. And we sat down with them on Zoom and kind of gave them the rough idea of what we were looking for. And they went off and came back and pitched it back to us in great detail. And they had us in tears. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they just pitched it to Doug a few weeks ago. And Doug was blown away and very emotional about what he heard. Uh, So... We found our writers, we have our director, and now we're going to try to put this thing together and and see when we could safely make this film and bring it to the world. But it needs to be told, you know, if you know, growing up as a kid, I don't remember James Harris, but I do remember Doug. you know the the being the first black quarterback to be drafted in the first round, being the first one to go to Super Bowl, People remember those things, but they don't, you know, we want to also highlight the trials and tribulations this man had to go through. You know, how do you lead a losing friend, straight playoff appearance, Tampa, and they don't want to pay him? Yep. Wouldn't give him the extension. They wouldn't give him the extension. When he was starting for them, he was the lowest paid quarterback as a starter. And he was even behind a lot of, Backups in salary—that yep. tells you the kind of respect that they had for it back then. Um, and you know, he ended up having to go to the USFL, and it was Joe Gibbs, who you know was a coordinator down in Tampa, uh, who who you know called on Doug to come up there and and and, and play for the Redskins. Um, so it, it's an amazing story. Uh, and and of triumph, but also a lot of tribulation. You know, it wasn't all easy when he got to DC either. You know, if you guys so, remember the the quarterback controversy between him and and Jay Schrader. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was at Howard then. I was at Howard. Yeah. then.
2: So we it was in your face daily. So we know yeah. Doug. Doug's a good friend of ours. Is he lobbying for
4: anyone in particular to play him? He hasn't mentioned it. <laughs> I, I have like I have, I have a couple of actors in my head. That I Can think you score? I I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> nah, because I, right. I I don't want their team. The hey, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but th- there's a couple of folks that I have in my head, and, and Anthony Hemingway has some people in his mind as well. Will really was the one most passionate about it. He brought it to me and was like, "What about Doug? William's his biopic?" And I said, "I'm down, man. Like Doug is a legend." I love that. There's
2: gonna be be one more chapter because we had Doug on the podcast about two weeks ago, right? He Doug's Mm -hmm. a good friend of ours. Yeah. And you know, with so few black head coaches getting hired in the NFL, we were trying to come up with a way to introduce owners to these coaches so they could get familiarized and make it happen. So Doug is going to have a big cookout at his house up in DC. Right. His wife is going to make was it gumbo or jambalaya, Jim? It was gumbo. It was gumbo, gumbo. All right. So you'll be invited. You invited to be invited to James, and then, you know, we, right. and Doug's going to solve the problems of this racial inequity in coaching hiring as well by having to cook out at his spot.
4: Well, if if there's anyone listening from the Houston, Texas front office, because <laughs> I'm a Texans fan, we Why? need Eric. We need Eric Enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Eric the Enemy needs to get that job. I'm putting it out there.
1: Hey, you're not alone. You're he not alone. He that
4: job. He needs to groom Deshaun Watson, and they, de- they need to be together for the next 10 years. That's what I'm saying.
1: You Bring that Chiefs of office down to Houston. <laughs> you got a lot of support on that one. Yeah.
2: And, and kind of along those lines, James, you know, Jim and I talk about this all, this, all the time, To the few coaches of color that there are in the NFL. You know, some of them have not necessarily hired people of color on their staffs or or don't have a ton of them on their staffs as a filmmaker we see these great films you've made you've got a lot of great leading ladies and leading men of color in front of the camera is it imperative to what you and will do to have that type of diversity behind the camera as your writers
4: as your shooters as your showrunners and things like that absolutely look sometimes you do your best you can and sometimes you don't always achieve the the, the percentage and the numbers you want uh, you know but we always set out to do just that and I, I feel confident we have done that on all of our projects um you know we 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 constantly put people in, pos- in positions not only to be in that position but to also hire people underneath them and we expect them to to have that same spirit of diversity when they get put on reach back Um, we're also involved in a lot of programs throughout different organizations in the film business to uh foster diversity uh and and have kind of like uh a pool of young talent coming up so i'm involved with a project where we are going to announce at the top of next year a program with jointly with Universal for below the line, uh, below the line jobs, which are you know uh, the department heads on television and, and, uh, and film sets. Um, it will be uh, kind of like an apprenticeship program where you will be able to get to shadow folks on set and be paid for it. See, That's awesome barriers to entry. You know, a lot of folks don't have the means to to shadow or intern for little or no money, um, and that most of the time is the barrier to entry to this business. So we're going to try to fix that with, with providing positions on productions, so that a pool of people we can choose, you know, to be line producers to come up the ranks. Uh, to be first ADs, uh, you know, to be production designers so that there's not a lot of looking around when you're asked to be diverse in your crew. And and that question comes up and people are like, well, I don't know any people in it. Right, right. Exactly. And and a lot of people in our industry, you know, people of color in our industry circulate lists, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of here are all the diverse hiring candidates in all these different departments. So we, we we exchange ideas, we exchange lists, we, you know, people are always calling me, I'm calling other people, we're always referring people. Um, that's the way it's gonna get done. You know, keeping information to ourselves is not gonna help uh, the next generation coming up. So we have to push them out there expose them as much as we can.
1: James, I know you gotta get out of here, but I wanted to ask you um, this. When you see the success of, say, A Black Panther, and for so long, Hollywood thought that a film fronted by people of color could not generate international revenue, so to speak, and to see the numbers that it did, I'm wondering what effect has that had on getting movies made um, that are fronted by people of color? And then secondly, it would seem to me from the outside that these movie heads always look at us as primarily being people who confront comedies. And when you're trying to do a more serious piece, how challenging is it to get that done versus, say, pitching a comedy to a studio head?
4: I would say that a lot is changing. Um, In some areas, it's changing fast. In some areas, not so much. you know, you'll have, I'm pretty sure, some folks out there who are decision makers who, who will look at Black Panther as an anomaly. You know, yeah. they'll say, that was a Marvel movie. You know, prove that outside the Marvel universe. You know, so you still have people that might say that. Um, but then you have most folks looking at it going, okay, it's possible. Um, really, the it's all about the economics of the business So, until more films fronting, uh, more films fronted by African Americans or people of color start doing better box office numbers worldwide, it's always going to be a ceiling for us in terms of how much marketing spend our films get, how big our production budgets are, because they put down a number and they separate it between domestic and international box office. And if you have a film that has a lower international box office or none, then that affects the marketing span. So we need more Black Panthers. We need more get outs. We need more Moonlights, which did more internationally than it did domestically. We need more films like that to prove in different territories that the global film audience will go see films starring predominantly people of color, Black folks in particular, and Will and I go about our jobs like yeah that's the historical trend but we're different and we choose our projects accordingly you know we 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 don't set boundaries for ourselves so you know whether whether the the gatekeepers believe it or not we move forward as if
1: Do you think of a film, uh, one last question, Steve, I know we gotta go, but do you think of a film as a black film or just a film?
4: It is a film, our people of color, what the story is, how we put it together. You know, um, we try to have as much diversity in front of the camera as possible, but we also try to put our characters in stories that are universally themed. So it's, it's, that's why I say the new American mainstream. You know, Girl on its Surface is just a road trip movie that we've seen before, but we've never seen it from that point of view. So we've always seen white males going on a trip behaving badly, right? And those films have been huge, like Hangover. Mm. So we didn't reinvent the wheel with Girl's Trip. We just placed them in a a situation so that the story could be told from a black female perspective. But at the end of the day, it's just a movie about four friends who love each other very much, who took this opportunity to reconnect and deal with their issues and have fun along the way. And that theme is universal and that's why it made over a hundred million dollars because white women could enjoy it. Black women, Asian, Latinas, women of all stripes came and then their males their male friends came and their husbands and their boyfriends and and so it is it is it is what it's a perfect example of how we try to construct our films put us in a situation that no matter what walk of life you're from you can understand you can relate and you can enjoy and it doesn't matter if you don't look like the person that's on the screen, the entire history of film, black folks have been going to see white people. Yep. So we're hoping that people who don't look like us will have that same thought. They see a Queen Latifah, a, a Jada Pinkett Smith and Regina Hall, Tiffany Haddish on a poster. And they don't go, I'm not going, they said, That movie looks funny, and I'm going to see it. And they enjoyed it, and it had nothing to do with being black. It was just a good movie. So that's what we try to accomplish.
2: Well, James, we appreciate everything that you and Will and your whole crew are doing uh, to entertain us, to educate us, to employ us. And, you know, we talked about your expansive resume to start this off. You've got to lead now with the lobbyists for the Eric Bieniemy to coach the Houston
1: Texans. Yes, yes.
4: <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> is what you are right now. Yeah, I, sure is. Is. The, I love that. That's what I want. I that love if you that. Know, if you guys know Eric, tell him I'm trying to make that happen. <laughs> uh, we know we be.
1: We know Eric. Eric. We would <laughs> have to hook you two up.
4: All right, yep. James. Thank you so much, brother. Good
2: luck with everything you got coming up.
1: I right, appreciate y'all. Ooh. You know, Steve, the disappointing thing for me about this podcast at times is that it's over too quickly. Because I I had so many things I wanted to talk to James about, other things I wanted to talk about. And at times I apologize to you because I think at times I was cutting you off just because I find what he does so fascinating um, that I had questions about it. And hopefully our audience will enjoy or enjoyed it as much as I know I enjoyed it, having the discussion with him and, and... you know, we want to tease you a little bit here and say we're going to try and bring more guests like that on as well, and um, just stay tuned i think uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it and, and I do love the fact you know the Doug Williams story and the approach
2: that he's taking oh, that was, oh. it, it's brilliant, it's brilliant because yes. you know when doug when Doug won that Super Bowl. For Washington, that was in 1989. That was my last year at Howard University in D.C. So we've we've got two generations of people just about who've heard about it but know nothing about it. So the parallel he's going to do to kind of keep it generational um, is absolutely fantastic, and I cannot wait to see who they cast as Doug. I
1: know, I know. (laughs) The one thing, I I love what he said too about um, trying to take a different approach because as writers... You and I, that, that's our background and where, where we, you know, we earned our, our stripes. And one of the things you try and do as a writer at times is everyone has the same story and you'll ask, how can you tell it differently? How can you make it unique and bring the, the reader in? And for him, he's doing the same thing with film. He's saying, OK, for those even who know Doug Williams story, how can I tell it differently? Um, and bring people in and entertain them as well as educate them at the same time. And I, I found that to be fascinating to to think about how he looked at it as opposed to just doing a straight biopic where chronology, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. But no, find a way to really engage the viewer. Um, I thought that was fantastic.
2: Yeah, and especially in, the, in this era where people growing up with black quarterback is not even a discussion anymore. So I, I do think that that's absolutely Fantastic. Hey, Jim, one thing, you know, we always want to make sure to do is to recognize HBCUs and you and I have been in conversations and hopefully the next couple of weeks, people, we're going to start bringing on some head coaches or some players or whatever from these historically black universities who's not, who aren't going to play their college football seasons until the spring. So we're going to find out how they're keeping their guys motivated, how they're getting them to class and, and everything they're having to work with. So we can educate you about the experience of historically black colleges because I do think this is a renaissance era for HBCUs and hopefully some things like this this Doug Williams movie when it launches and and some of the things we're seeing going on in the world right now can really get people to go back to the roots of great education and and history and legacy. And again, we can continue to amplify our HBCUs. Jim, on another note before we get out of here, and it's a story that is boggling my mind in in this (laughs) the season of injuries devastating injuries right? Dak Prescott, Saquon Barkley just all these guys Chandler Jones is out for the season for the Arizona Cardinals this has been the best sack artist in the NFL what is it, over 4 or 5 years this guy is a great player
1: crickets on a Hall of 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 Fame pace
2: crickets Jim Nobody is Look, talking about this. What is going on?
1: You know, and I, and I hate to say this, Steve. It's like, um, it, I think part of it is that he plays in Arizona and people didn't expect a lot from Arizona this year. And I don't mean in any way for that to be disrespectful to the Cardinals. I remember back when I was at Sports Illustrated, uh, my first year there, and during the playoffs, they assigned me to cover the Cardinals. And so you could say, well, I live in San Diego, I'm the closest rider to Arizona, so that's why they were doing it. And what I really believe in my heart, what it was, was that they didn't expect the Cardinals to do anything. I was the new rider, sort of the low man on the totem pole, so send me out to cover the Cardinals, be one and done, and they're out. Well, if you remember that year, they went all the way to the Super Bowl, and so I ended up having, in my opinion, the best um, assignment of any of the riders at Sports Illustrated that year, being able to follow the Cardinals journey all the way to the Super Bowl. And I think some of that is what's playing here is, is that with, with Chandler, this is a devastating loss for them. And the guy Huge. that I feel for most is Vance Joseph. You look back last year, all the players that he lost last year, even beginning the year with, with Patrick Peterson on suspension for the first six games, you lose a couple of your starting or guys who are projected to be your starting linemen along that defensive front you have some injuries you lose Robert Alford your corner at the start of the year last year now he comes this year they finally get him some help they get Isaiah Simmons in the draft they get a couple of linebackers who can help balance the pass rush George Phillips in the
2: middle
1: yeah and and now look what's happening you know injuries again are starting to affect that side of the ball so I feel for him but no question Steve you're right this is a huge story particularly for the Arizona Cardinals
2: yeah, just, you know, it's just one of these things where we talk about this and that, but some teams, great players, you know, it just it just does not necessarily resonate. So, all the best to Chandler Jones, you know, get well absolutely. and come back and, and do your thing. And hopefully, the Arizona Cardinals can continue to, uh, to do well without him. They're right there in the hunt in that really good NFC West. Well, Jim, you know, a really good show, really good job with James Lopez. It was absolutely informative. I hope our listeners, you know, Will be cool with us from time to time, going off the beaten path. Because again, these are some things you want to do for you to help you inspire, to make you think outside the box a little differently. Because that's what happens to us. We were—I was educated, and, and that's all I can ask. Anytime I speak with someone is to be better than I was before we started that conversation. So you know, I'm—I'm I'm glad we had that, and uh, let's get ready
1: to walk out that door, Jim. Absolutely. Look, let me say this again to the listeners now. Make sure you go. And leave a review. Make sure you subscribe, because as Steve knows, we want to give you more of what you're fucking for. what you're fucking for. for. So please, subscribe, leave us a review, and we will try and get to the things that you want. If there's a player you want, if there's a coach you want, if there's a topic you want, leave us a review, let us know, and we'll definitely try and address it.
2: And if any of y'all got some spare ACs, Holla
1: at me and Jim because it. You can see is I hot. need it, man. I
2: feel like Samuel Jackson and do the right thing. It is hot!
1: And with that. Ju- go ahead, good, Jim. Man. I just watched it the other night, man. So, yeah, no. <laughs> One the good. best
2: movie. Senior Love Daddy. So, I'm Steve Weiss for <laughs> Jim Trotter, our producer, Thomas Warren, and the Howard Mob. We are out.